if you have a Bible, why don't you turn in it to James chapter 2. If you have an app, you can do that as well. If you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and one of our um, ushers would love to bring you a Bible. And if that's your first Bible, we'd like you to keep it because we have a practice of going through uh, passages in the Bible. We believe that this Bible is God's Word and that it's important for us to read it and understand it in its context and apply it to our lives. We think this is the way that God speaks to us. So you'll need that Bible week in and week out. And we're in James chapter 2, the last part of James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, and I want to read it out publicly for us. And this is what it says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Great, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For, it is, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we're opening up your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and teach us today. We believe that this word is incredibly important for us to know. But not just to know in our heads, but actually to know to the point of obedience. And so today, Jesus, we're asking that you make those connections for us. That through your spirit you help us not simply to hear these words but to obey them. Would you bolster our faith? Would you give us new faith, Jesus? Would you take the hardness in our hearts that resists this at some point and would you soften that up so we can hear and obey? Jesus, this is not hard to understand but it is hard to actively do. And so we're asking that you empower our obedience today. And make this understandable through my words this morning. And Jesus, I pray all these things in your awesome and holy name. Amen. Well, if you're new to Urban Grace, we're in a series called Prove It. And that's based upon this entire book of James. In fact, that's what we think is one of the primary ways that you can describe the book of James. is, Is it's talking about... Uh, belief in this good news of Jesus Christ, but a belief 
really that needs in some ways to be proved, not to God in order to earn our relationship to God. I always say that uh, at the very beginning, that say, let, let's not get confused that, that when we say the words prove it, or when we named our series prove it, that what we're, what we're talking about is proving our faith to God, but really proving it to ourselves and showing ourselves what we actually have. And so that this whole series is a challenge really to all Christians. To, to be honest, this is not a letter that's written to people that are not Christians. This is not a, a, a word that's given to people to say, well, there's, there's only one way that you can prove this and by doing these things you prove this. That's, it's not really the message. It's really a letter to Christians that everyone's invited to listen in on. It's actually a rebuke in some ways. If you don't know what a rebuke is, um, look the word up, but it basically means to like rebuke. It's hard to describe without using the word rebuke. Rebuttal, if you will. Push back against. And so it's a rebuke to those of us who have, who, who have a faith that's really all internal. That doesn't ever exit and show itself in our lives. And this morning we're going to tackle what I think is the crux of the entire letter. It, everything else seems to be an illustration of this particular truth. It's incredibly important truth to get. There's a couple of illustrations, and James is a good writer. He's a good author. Uh, I, I think this, this letter is, is incredibly insightful in its word pictures, and it's helpful. But essentially, this is a very important theological concept for us to get. This idea of the concept of faith that's connected to works. Now, there, there's a couple things I'm going to say, first of all. Um, number one is, I think we get this. I think we understand this concept um, everywhere. I don't think this is a foreign concept to almost anyone. We have different ways of saying it. So one of the ways that we say it is, well, when the rubber meets the road. Have you ever heard that phrase, right? What does that mean? It, it means there's some connection to, to what you say and what you're going to do, right? Or, or we'll see about that. Or everything, something that kids always say on the playground, you want to bet on that? Right, you ever say that? Oh, I think so-and-so could win this championship. Oh, you want to bet on that? What, what are we saying? Do you really believe it was what we're saying? Right? Do you really, are you willing to put some action behind what you say you believe? I, I didn't consider myself very afraid of heights. I don't know if you've been to the Calgary Tower in the last 20 years. Anyone? Last 10 years? Anyone stepped out on that plexiglass thing with complete and total confidence? For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, in 2005, some brilliant scientist decided to install basically kind of industrial strength plexiglass that would support, I guess, the weight of, I don't know how many hundreds of people, like on the floor of the Calgary Tower, the observation deck of the Calgary Tower. Now I know in my head that this will support me and it's supported thousands of people and yet I am amazed at that weird tickling feeling in my stomach as I step out on this plexiglass. It's the weirdest thing ever. If you have never experienced, go this afternoon. It's strange. You don't think you're afraid of heights? I challenge you. Do that with total confidence. Walk up there as if this is just a piece of cement. What is that? What is that 
inside of us besides something scientific. It's this idea of going, I believe this in my head that this will support me, but there's something unique and unusual about the action of it. Because I don't think there's anyone up there who, if you ask them, does this support your weight? They would say, yes, it totally does. Then go and step on it. It's a totally different thing. That's what James is actually talking about. He is saying, actually, he's going to spend a a long time, he's going to spend a number of verses trying to explain that you can't pull these two things apart, faith and works. But before we even go further, I wanted to find two things for us before we actually kind of get into the the meat of the message. I wanted to find faith and I wanted to find works. Some of us are, are, are viewing this faith and you're like, just general faith? Is this what... Is this a general concept about just general faith in general? No, it's actually not. It's specifically directed towards um, saving faith. Faith that has to do with salvation. Salvation being the root word of salvation is save. This this is not talking about kind of uh, faith to believe that the market will turn back upward. It's not that kind of faith. It's talking about faith that saves, faith that receives everything that Jesus offers freely to us. Everything. That's why we call the gospel good news. It's not something that can actually be earned. That's what we're saying here. But we can receive it. It is a gift that we cannot earn, but we can receive. It's not talking merely about um, just, just this cerebral thing either. There's actual kind of action that goes along with it. That's why it's always connected to this word works. Now, I don't know if you use that word today. Like you generally don't show up and uh, people ask how your works are going. We don't use that word very often. We might say good deeds though. We might use the phrase good deeds. Uh, We might say action. I think maybe that's the best word that I can picture here or use is the word action. That this, is, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about action, acts of obedience to God. So faith in God and acts of obedience to God, James is saying these cannot be separated. Some of you, when you read that, maybe your tradition is because I say things like faith is a, or, or because salvation is a gift and, and it's something that we receive, uh, the text actually says opposite. We're going to take some time to pull this apart and show you. I don't think it is opposite. I think it's deeply connected, but it takes some time to review this. So the first thing I want to do is, is go, th- or, or, sorry, I'll, I'll just explain where I'm going here this morning. Three things. First of all, uh, the way this is written is, is kind of in this ancient rhetoric style, which is you ask the question, then do all the answers, right? That's a very kind of, according to those who would have been the first hearers, it would have been a very traditional way of teaching someone. We don't do that now in the same kind of ways. It's a little more interactive. Um, But the way that James likes to do this is he likes to ask a question, then he'll give the answer for us, right? As if there's an imaginary courtroom and he's imaginary lawyers and he's taking either side of the situation. And so, first of all, he's going to argue, he's going to argue for works. 
He's going to say, he's going to argue for action. He's going to argue that these two cannot be separated. And then he's going to bring in the argument kind of against works. He's going to argue against works. Like if someone were to argue against this, what would they say? And then he's going to rebuttal. And I would say at the end, he's going to show us that the argument works. That this makes sense historically. That if you look at the rootedness of all these great stories of history, they're about faith. But not about faith that stands alone, but faith that is always accompanied by action. And so I think the best way it's been said by many is that we are saved as Christians. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that stands alone. You hear that? We are saved by faith alone. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor toward us. He gives it to us freely and we receive it through not earning it. But it's not a faith that we receive that just stands alone as faith. It's a faith that is always accompanied by action. Always. And James will say, that's actually the definition of true saving faith. So let's get into it. The argument for works. I think that's the next slide here. If you're ever wondering what someone really believes, you watch carefully not just what they say, but what they do, don't you? It's very common for us. You watch what happens to that person in a variety of situations. If someone says they express a faith in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, something that Jesus states about himself, You say someone believes that and what do you watch for? You watch for whether or not that has some sort of an effect as to whether they think he is the way, as whether they think he is the truth, and whether in him is found ultimate life. What James is saying is, is again, this pretty simple concept when he he does this argument. But But he says it in such an interesting way. He's like, what good is it? It's interesting. It's a great challenge. See, what good is it when you don't do or act upon what you say? What good is it? It's a common phrase that we would hear today too. What good is that? What kind of faith is that? It's an immediate challenge to us. Some of us have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. We, we, We would say we believe it. And James is saying, what good is it if you say you believe it, but nothing changes as a result of it? What good is that? What good is that? It's a question we immediately have to ask ourselves. What good is my faith? If it hasn't translated a little bit. You know, if someone came up to me, or if, let's just say it was me. Let's say I came up to you and I said, I'm a very generous person. Just not with my time or my money. What would you say? How would you respond to me? Would you say, oh, that's, that's good for you. <laughs> What's good for you may not be good for me. Or would you say, well, I'm questioning whether you're actually really a generous person. Not even that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, there obviously is something wrong with that. But there's something wrong when someone says, I'm a generous person. But their actions show otherwise. This is exactly what James is showing here. 
He's actually building on the previous text here when he, he's talking about this as well. He's talking about all these kinds of things that, that, that are actions of obedience. Acts of obedience that show what you believe. In the previous one, it's if you believe that, that, that there is, that we are all equal in the sight of God, why do you treat these people differently, the rich and the poor? If you actually believe that everyone is equal, why do you treat people unequally? Previous to that, he says, if, if, if you hear the word of God and don't do it, you're like a person who completely forgets that you've heard it. You're not actually hearing it. He's saying if you trust God with all things, even your trials and the tests in life can be seen and received with joy, not because they're exciting to go through, but because you know that they're going to accomplish the faith that you're asking for. You know they're going to develop that. So James is building on that. He's saying, if you don't hear this carefully, let me state it this way. What good is it if you have faith or say you have faith, but do not act? He uses this word, it's, it's, it's like as if. And this would have been a, a kind of a situation that would be very familiar to his hearers. If you go back and you understand a little bit of the context of the situation with James, especially at the very beginning, he's talking to a group of Christians that have been scattered according to persecution. In other words, uh, people who are not in the church don't like that there's a church and they try to impose their power and will to either scatter them, shut Christianity down, things along those lines. It's very possible that some of the Christians actually faced some sort of economic persecution as a result of being a Christian. This still happens today, by the way. Right? When someone feels even within an office that says, I want to do the right thing and everyone else doesn't want to do the right thing, they find a way to kind of push this person out of a particular position. This, this has happened to me quite regularly. You don't get the opportunities because they know you're a Christian. They know you won't really have a heart to make the most money or, or whatever it is. They know you'll want to do the right thing and so they find a way to keep you out of a particular leadership position because they know that it will impact their bottom line. This is what's happening to the Christians in James. They're feeling this weight of economic oppression. They're getting persecuted this way. And so this issue of money means a great deal to these first hearers. And he says, so, so it's like one of you saying, you walk up to someone who's homeless, without food, hungry, and you say to them, hey, I hope your day goes awesome, knowing clearly you're in a position to help them and you walk away. He said, that's what it's like. It's that calloused. It's that confusing. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but it's, it's, it's ashamedly happened to me. Right? Someone says, hey, can you lend a hand? And I say, no, I'm not in a position to. That was a lie. I may not want to. That's true. <laughs> I may not have the resources right there, but I'm in a position to if I really wanted to help, to help. Have you ever found yourself in that position? You know you're in a position to help a friend. Hey, do you have time for a coffee? I really need to talk something through. You have it in you to do this, but you just don't want to. And so you use some sort of other excuse. You say some words like, how about I'll pray for you. 
I hope it goes well for you. This is what James is saying, is when we use these kind of words as a smokescreen, what good is that? What good is our faith? What good is the faith that we believe when we use certain ways and we manipulate words and situations to get out of something? It's a great challenge to all of us. He says, what does someone do when they're in a position to help and they, 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 they know someone needs help? He says, someone who truly believes that God has placed them in a position to do so will help them. That's what he's saying. I mean, this is just an example for the poor, but you can take this anywhere. Maybe at your work you're in a position to do something that you know full well you're in a position to do something, to help someone, to be helpful. But you know also that it will require something from you. That it will require maybe a loss of your comfort. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a potential friendship loss. Maybe it's a, a positional loss. So you lose some power in the company. I don't know. I'm just purporting ideas. What is it for you? What is it for you? James finishes this off by saying, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Is a bad idea? Is that what you see in the text? You shouldn't. It says faith by itself, if it does not have works or action, is anyone? Dead. Dead. Not maimed, not injured, hurt, not partially. It's dead. Who has dead batteries hanging around? Anyone? Right? You got a junk drawer, you got dead batteries. What are they good for? Not for powering things, that's for sure. Right? What are batteries made to do? Batteries are made to power the things that we can't plug in. Right? You have a flashlight with batteries in it. How effective is that flashlight at accomplishing its goal? Useless if the goal is to light something. It's incredibly helpful if it's used to hit someone. But not if the goal is to light something. I don't know if you've ever been camping and your batteries go dead. It is the most frustrating thing possible. You're like, I have all this weight and the only thing that this is useful for is developing my back muscles. It's not useful to light. And this is what James is saying. Faith without action is dead. It's the dead batteries. Wow. I mean, this is not a kind, soft, encouraging word, is it? It's a great challenge to us. The ESV Study Bible plainly states this, there can be no true faith that fails to produce works. Say that again. There can be no true faith that fails to produce works. I actually have no power in me to monitor your faith. I don't know. I don't know where you are. That's not up to me to judge. That's why I think Jesus says to judge. This is the kind of stuff that you should leave up to me. 
All I can do is ask you, how's your faith? Is it dead? Is your faith dying because you're not connecting it to what you're doing? Or you say, I, I wish I had more faith, but you're not doing anything about the things you know you need to do. The Spirit of God is alive and well and He's convicting you of certain things. But you're refusing that voice. And then you're confused as to why your faith is dead. James points it out very plainly to us. It's because faith without works is dead. At the very least, it's dying a rapid death. That's the argument for works. And then James moves on to the argument against works. He begins his second argument by quoting the invisible person. Well, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. I've met this person, I think. I, I don't actually know if the, this was an actual person that James had a, an argument with. But there's always kind of that hypothetical situation that's really about you, right? Have you ever had these? Oh, a person I know says... Right, you use that sort of argument. That's really you, kind of couched behind this, you know, someone I know or someone, someone who's really suspicious says this, and it's really you, you're having this question. Maybe that's what it is. We're, we're not totally sure whether James is actual, has this person, although I, I was like, I've met people like this, so I'm, it could go either way on this. But here's what he says. You have faith, I have works. What he's basically saying there is there are doers and there are thinkers, right? Some of you are doers, right? You hate thinking about things. Like when you have some free time, it doesn't, you don't enjoy it at all to sit down with a book and just ponder a really deep philosophical problem. You want to do something, right? You don't want to, you don't want to think about what is it like to cut a tree down. You want to do it, hypothetically speaking. You don't want to watch someone fix something. You don't want, want to watch someone make something. You want to do it. And I think that's the kind of person that James is talking about here. He's like, some of, you, some of you are doers and some of you are thinkers. So you think I'm the thinker and you're the doer. And he says, no, these, these things can never be separated. They can never be separated. What does he say? Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Maybe I got that mixed up. I'm not sure. Maybe he was saying, you're the thinker, I'm the doer. Either way. Some of us are accused of being doers and not thinkers. And think these are two different types of people. They're not really, is what James is saying. There is no Christian that, that there's Christian thinkers and then there's Christian doers. He said, everyone who takes the name of Jesus Christ as their leader, whoever follows them is, is someone who thinks and does, is someone who believes and acts, is someone who has faith and works. He says, you believe that God is one. That was a very common statement for, for Jewish Hebrew people. Right, that's who it's spoken to. It's Hebrew people with a Hebrew background who that is a big deal to, to say that God is one. Right, that's, that's kind of the, the Hebrew mission statement. God is one. He says, hey, you believe that God is one. Great. Guess who also believes this? Demons. 
All of the spiritual realm also believes this, but it doesn't translate into saving faith. They're not actually the same thing. Just believing something, just believing something about God, just believing that the gospel is good news without inactivity is not actually believing the gospel good news. I mean, that's an incredibly powerful statement, isn't it? I was trying to think of examples. Of course, I dug way back into a time where I was involved in woodworking when I actually had a garage and I had a shop. I remember a story about something called the, wait for it, saw stop, right? You, you, I'm, I'm hopefully going to pique your interest so that like either you're paying attention or you're like Googling saw stop videos. Fascinating, by the way. Well, this is a table saw, a quite powerful table saw, like an industrial strength table saw with a very fast spinning blade. In the video, they show them cutting through steak, you know, so it's, 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 they're able to cut through things if you, if you turn the little system off. It's able to cut through any wood that you want, except he's figured out something. He's figured out some way. I, I don't, I'm not a scientist here. I don't know everything, but somehow he's figured out that the, when you touch something, it, it breaks off a circuit. So he's connected, like the human touch with a brake system on the saw stop. So that if you by chance accidentally get your finger stuck in the blade in like less than a thousandth of a second, the saw stop fires a brake into the blade and pulls the blade down off of the table so that you don't get any cuts. You're like, yeah, right. I guarantee you, go YouTube this. It's fascinating. I was like, I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was possible. Okay, now I thought it was possible. But guess what my question was? What do you think my question was when I watched the saw stop? Okay, he said, if you put a, you know, a, a wiener or a hot dog in here, it'll, I was like, great, great. Hot dogs, great, super. I want to see you put your finger in this thing and see if you really believe in this, right? Didn't you have that question as I was saying this? You want to see this guy? I was like, there's no way he does it. He does it. He puts his finger into the blade. I'm not going to tell you what happens. Right? What are you saying, though? You're saying, I want to see it myself. I want to see. He does. He takes this finger. I was like, that was smart because if you lose a thumb, that's bad. This one's not too bad. Okay? Right? You can still do a lot with this. Right? So it goes like this. Puts his finger into the saw. What's that? That's exactly what James is talking about. You say you have faith in one God. He's the creator of the universe. Salvation through one person only. Your sins are forgiven. You receive everything that Jesus has received. You say you believe that. He says, you need to act. You need to put your finger in the saw and trust that's what saving faith is. Isn't that amazing? Incredible challenge for us. What, I'm, what James is saying is it's entirely possible for you to show up regularly every week at Urban Grace and say you believe it. Perhaps at the end of the service when we have our Lord's table, we say this is an act 
of someone who believes that this is true, that Jesus Christ died on this earth, that he came to this earth as God, that his blood shed was actual forgiveness for sins. We say this, it's there, you can come and take it and not have it impact your life. It's possible that you could come up and receive communion, the Lord's table, Eucharist, and not be saved. Why? Because if it's just what you believe and not have any impact on your life, then James would actually argue, what good is that? Your faith is dead. Some of you are saying, are you saying my faith is dead? Or am I saying your faith is dead? I'm saying, I don't know if your faith is dead. But I think you do. I think you know. I think every single one of us knows where we stand. Hey, if you don't have faith yet, might I just say, this is a place we want you to come to find out about this faith. That we don't require you to have faith to show up on Sunday morning. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying, if you say, I believe this, but nothing has impacted your life, according to James, he says, that's not real faith. That's just investigating who God is. That's just taking a serious look at Christianity, but it is not saving faith. And some are like, this is, this is too close to like this me earning my salvation and that's why great, great theologians they don't like this book. So dance is really, really close. For them, it dances too close to salvation. I said, it just dances close to reality. It just hits us really hard. And you know what? I, I, I will say this as well. You can probably fool us maybe for a lifetime but you'll never fool the author of that faith, Jesus Christ. You don't need to prove your faith to him because he knows exactly where your heart is actually at. You don't need to come before Jesus and try and hide and try and tell him, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Hey, hey, I'm doing this. He knows, right? He's like the parent of the two-year-old. And remember, have you ever seen this? Like, again, I'm referencing YouTube an awful lot. Apologize for that. Hypothetically, I've watched YouTube a lot. You've seen these kids who get into something, or dogs that get into something, and the kids are like, what? I'm, I'm innocent. And like, did you get into the markers? And they're like, no, I'm totally innocent. And their whole face is like covered in marker. And, you're just like, and, and the parents are just like, they're like, oh, really? That's kind of what it's like when we try to tell Jesus where our faith is at. I'm really faithful, Jesus. And he's like, oh, okay. He's so gentle in this and he, he invites us and he says, here's a test. You, you say you believe this? What effect has it had? What effect has it had? In what ways, friends, Do you not have to hear this? Do you want to be shown you foolish person? So this is the third part of the argument. The argument works. So do, you, do I really need to break this down any further, James? In my mind, no, he doesn't. 
I got the point. Great challenge. As I'm preparing, I'm going through all of the places where what I say does not match up with what I really believe or what I really do. And I'm convicted deeply about those things. But James starts this paragraph quite caustic and he says, do you really know? Do you really need to be shown how foolish you are? He says, let's go back through our history and let me show you this. And so he brings out two examples, Abraham and Rahab. Rahab being the least likely, Abraham being the most likely example. Okay? So Abraham is the father of the Hebrew faith. He's the guy that God says, go to a land that I will show you, pick up your belongings and leave by faith and move and go to a land that I will show you. I'm not telling you where that land is. I just want you to start walking and I will show you where that land is. That's terrible advice to anyone unless you hear it from God, right? Like if you decide to move out of the home for the first time when you're four, this is exactly what happens, right? You're like, I'm running away, I'm four. And your parents are like, where are you going? You're like, I don't know. God will show me as I go. Like, this is a terrible plan, right? You can't even reach the doorknob. This is a terrible plan. You don't know anyone but us. This is what God asked Abraham to do. Pick up your stuff, your wealthy, comfortable life, pack up your tent, start walking. I will show you the land. I will reveal it to you when you get there. How do I know which way to go? If I was Abraham, I would be like, okay, just give me a map. Just give me a map. Show me general areas. Abraham doesn't do this. He believes God at his word. And says, look, it, I, this doesn't make sense, but if you say it, I believe you're God. I believe you're in control. I believe you're sovereign. I believe you're the one true God. And I'm going to act on it. That's what he says. That's what's credited to him as righteousness. Because that was a very consistent part of Abraham's life. Now he stumbled his way through his life. Don't get me wrong. He was not a perfect example of faith. Because there was a time when his faith needed to be challenged even further. And God said, I will do it through your offspring. I will bless the entire world through your offspring. The trouble was Abraham was really old and having a lot of trouble having kids. His wife was completely infertile. And God said, it will be one of your children that's going to carry on the legacy. And Abraham gets 90. He's like, hey God, remember that promise you gave to me? Uh, about that. I don't have any kids. I don't know if you know this, but that's how it works, God. God said, oh no, your wife's going to have a baby next year. She thought this was hilarious. She laughs. That's why his name was Isaac. It means he laughs. Son is born. Spoiler alert. Son starts to grow up. God says, do you still trust me? Do you still trust me? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this son who means everything to you, who means the promise, and I want you to put him on the altar. This wasn't like a metaphorical altar. He went on the altar. And Abraham was like, what is God asking me to do? Are you serious? This doesn't even make sense. This is against the law in some cultures. But I'll do it if God says. He acts. And James says, see, that's how faith works. Faith does things like this. 
Faith doesn't try and rationalize everything. This is Abraham on the other spectrum. Different story, complicated, can't really get into it. But she trusts God at his word from a different culture, outside of the culture. Didn't know this God, really, from a hole in the wall. Knew him from one of the gods, but just decided to believe on him as the God. Trusted. Doesn't go into her lifestyle. It says Rahab the prostitute, because that's what she was. But she believed God as a word, and she acted upon it. So I ask the question again. For as body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Are you seeing these as two separate things? Or do you know that there is things that God is asking you to do? He's asking you to believe. He's asking you to say. There are places he's asking you to go. There are people he's asking you to talk to. There are things in your life he's asking you to get rid of. There's steps that he's asking you to take. And he's saying, if you believe me and if you trust in me, you will do them. Not because they will earn his favor, but because they will prove to yourself that your faith in him is real. And I close by quoting someone very famous, Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. Guy way before. Okay? ultimately responsible in some ways for bringing uh, the Bible uh, back to the everyday person and not just those in kind of spiritual power, right? He's credited with this. He didn't like the book of James. That's a widely known fact among scholars. He did not like the book of James because he was living in a culture that was trying to earn its favor to God, was trying to show like, I believe in God because I do all these things. That's not what James is saying and that's not ultimately how we're to understand this. But he thought James was too, too close to the line. He thought James, people would get confused by reading James and think they could somehow earn their favor and yet interestingly enough, when Martin Luther wrote his introduction to the book of Romans that may probably sit on the opposite side, it was one of his favorite books. And here's what he said about faith in his introduction to the book of Romans. He said, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. Amazing. It is impossible for it, it that being faith, not to be doing good things incessantly. It, it, it does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Now, does that sound like someone who doesn't like the book of James? Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Friends, I simply want you to leave with this. This question, is your faith dead? According to James. Have you missed this? Is God asking you to do something, whatever that may be? 
Is he asking you to take a next step? True faith will. True faith is not content with following Jesus simply from somewhere up here or even somewhere here. But it goes both ways. We cannot talk about true faith without talking about good works. The book of Ephesians clearly lays this out for us when it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's verse 8 and 9. And then it says this in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith and works, friends. I'll call the band up now. And we have a, a, a little, we're starting a little tradition here of, in some ways, just meditating on what God is speaking to us. In a few weeks, we hope to roll out a, a sheet of paper where you could actually write down, this is what I think God is asking me to do today. Based upon what I've heard from God, this is what he's asking me to do. But until that time, write it down at least in your mind. At least think about it. And then as you feel that God has spoken to you and you've heard him and what you know you need to do and the action step you need to take, not the action step I told you to take, the action step you think you need to take on the basis of what you heard. Then we invite those who truly believe that full and complete access to God and only comes through Jesus Christ can come forward and take of communion. This isn't to separate believers from unbelievers. This is not a way of saying we're in and you're out. This is a way of an opportunity for those who do believe to come and participate, to act upon something that they do believe. And Jesus gave us this action because he said, this will help you because you have to think about it in order to come up here, essentially. You have to think about this at least a little bit. And here's what it represents. The bread represents the body of Christ. This represents the fact that we believe that God did not come to us merely in spirit, but came in the flesh. And that it wasn't just a man becoming God, that it was God becoming a man. And that this man, Jesus Christ, lived on this earth, walked this earth, lived a perfect sinless life on this earth. And by believing in, in him, we may have eternal life and everything that Jesus offers as a result. But he didn't give it to us just by following his example. He did it by transferring his, the penalty that he paid, which is his death for your life. And that's symbolized in the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ. If that sounds creepy to you, remember that this is about sacrifice. This is about Jesus Christ offering himself as a sacrifice for you in your place, on your behalf. And in this, you receive the great exchange, which is everything that Jesus earns. So let's consider these things together.